This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Welcome to the latest edition of the Times Opinions Did You Read podcast. Today I'm joined by two of our columnists, Jenny Russell and David Aronovich, and also our political editor, Francis Elliott. We're discussing three topics today. What might stop British politics becoming as partisan as America's? Labour's changes to schools and welfare policies since the reshuffle seem to suggest Labour may be moving a little bit to the centre on those issues. And do we shut up about human rights in order to avoid upsetting China, a great potential growth market for UK businesses? David Aronovich, can I start off with you on this topic of partisanship in America? We see two warring parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, which not only don't seem to be able to agree on budget deficit measures, they seem to almost be talking completely different languages. Could the same kind of intransigence happen here, particularly if we're going into an era of minority government where actually the parties do have to work together in some extent? Yeah, it's worth remembering that... In my living memory, though, possibly not in many other people's, there were such things as moderate Republicans. I suppose John McCain is almost the kind of last example of it, but the kind of Rockefellers and so on, who were essentially like right-wing Democrats or sort of centrist Democrats. In other words, there were centrist Republicans. And that increasingly now in, in America, you have to lean towards the right-wing in order to get anywhere in the Republican Party at all. Now, this is uh, a, a development which is mirrored by the way in which people look at each other politically. So increasingly, people talk to other people who think politically as they do, socialise with other people who think politically as they do, listen to the radio programmes and watch the TV news programs that reflect back to them the opinions that they've already got. This, so this is a very like Fox News, like Fox Talk News, radio. exactly a yeah. very important part of uh, of that division. And if you look at who reads the many political books that are produced in America, the uh, left wing people read the left wing books, the right wing people read the right wing books, and they certainly don't read each other's books. Now the question is, are we going in the same direction here? When we have this sort of huge debates framed continuously in terms of the male on the one 
one side or the Guardian on the other. Uh, and it's pretty clear that one side isn't reading the other and thinks that the other has no virtues whatsoever. Mm. One side is traitors, the other side are all kind of right-wing so-and-sos, etc. Uh, then in that case, you can see, if you like, the kind of burgeoning possibility of the same kind of breakdown. But actually, we're a much smaller country, and I think it's much less easy to become unaware of each other in the way the Americans have. So I'm not unhopeful. And, and Jenny Russell, you used to work for the BBC. And of course, one of the big differences between Britain and America is this huge public service broadcaster that perhaps through that, we still have a national conversation. Yeah, thank God for it. I think that um, it's one of the great joys of British life and it's one of the things that will protect us against going the American way because there is a news source that people can turn to, which I know from having spent 10 years working on it, you make enormous efforts all the time to think, is this being fair to both sides? I remember vividly when the Labour government came in, I was editing um, a current affairs programme at the BBC, The World Tonight, and there was saying to all the staff, because the Labour government has come in, we've got to take particular care now to represent the Conservative perspective because we mustn't just go for the group think that says, oh, well, the left have won and now those are the only people we need to care about. And we used to sit and have long arguments about how you made sure that you were being fair to all sides. And it's something that the BBC thinks about rigorously. And I think that's critical because all the evidence shows, um, as David was saying, that if you only listen to the people who agree with you, then you're in an echo chamber and nothing ever challenges your worldview. And you listen to slanted interpretations and I, you can see the dangers of that here, actually, in the way that the Telegraph this week was covering the migrant benefits story. They were, they were talking about 600,000 EU migrants in Britain being um, non-active in the, in the labour market. And the implication of the story was they were all claiming benefits. In mm. fact, only 38,000 of them were. All the rest were children or pensioners or non-working mothers uh, or Irish students. And you would, if you'd read that story and it was your only news source, you'd have thought, bloody hell, more than half a million EU migrants sitting here living off us. And it's not the case. And Fra Francis Elliott. But the, yeah, the B Jenny, the BBC is itself, you know, being dragged into the in, into the mire here, isn't it? I mean, you know, the the, the, the Paul Dacre piece uh, in the Guardian and in the Mail was as much of an attack on the BBC as it was in the Guardian. I mean, do you worry that the that the national conversation itself is sort of you know being marginalised in that way? I mean, it it does seem that. You know, increasingly, um, it's being denigrated. You mean for, yeah. for for not being on one side or the other? I think I think that probably will happen increasingly because it's not just um, Fox News. It's the fact that everyone can choose their Twitter followers and, the and their Facebook of, circles. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And of course, what's happening to our British political parties is they get more and more unrepresentative. The Conservatives are choosing people as candidates who are not representative of the Tories who might appeal to the country at large. For instance, they're much more right wing on Europe, for instance, and they tend to be more well, right wing I'm, I'm on not immigration. Sure I, I agree with you. I think one of the strengths, I don't know whether Francis Elliott would uh, agree with me on, on this, but I think one of the strengths that will long la outlast David Cameron, bigger than his own impact on British politics, bigger than the manifesto that he was elected upon, was this class of 2010. Half of the Conservative Parliamentary Party was replaced. And yes, in many ways, they're like Margaret Thatcher in their Euroscepticism, their tough views on immigration. But actually, they had to win their seats by a lot of doorstep campaigning. And so their view of the National Health Service, their view of some of the more centrist issues is they're a different kind of conservative. So I don't think they are straightforward right-wingers in the way that perhaps some no. of the old uh, Tufton Bufter brigade were in the past. I, I would agree with that. And of course, I mean, you know, we should trot out the, the, the cliche or truth uh, uh, 
delete for taste that you know parties are themselves coalitions um, uh, and the 2010 is no difference you've got Jacob Rees-Mogg to, to Esther McVeigh but they do I mean you know in their own ways represent modern Britain perhaps not Jacob but uh, <laughs> Esther, Esther certainly <laughs> but I, I, don't, I don't know I mean for what it's worth I'll tell you a, a quick anecdote um about um, that says something about kind of partisanship in British politics. I, I, there was there was the deputy hustings, deputy deputy speaker hustings at the PLP uh, last night. The parliamentary Labour parliamentary party. parliamentary Labour Party choosing the cons- uh, uh, hearing from cons- only Conservatives really can stand for the deputy speakership. And so there were four. Um, uh, maybe five uh, Tory hopefuls up for in committee room fourteen for the PLP and uh, sounds I, delicious. <laughs> it was it was fun. I bumped into one wise old Labour MP. Said, "How did it go?" He said, "Well, uh, this, that, the other." We chatted through. Said, said, um, said uh, "So who are you going to vote for?" He said, "Well, on the grounds that I've uh, I've always said that I would only vote for a dead Tory. Um, Brian Binney's the oldest. He's closest to death." Oh, I <laughs> Charming. <laughs> <laughs> Which, in a kind of affectionate way, I think sums up a certain amount of you know. How, how parliamentary cross-party behaviour Well, that works. reminds us, of course, that Aaron Bevan used to do, do, you know, famously describe Tories as vermin. Uh, uh, and actually, that was, uh, even at the time, that was outside of the way in which we have a kind of a normal discourse. Whenever I hear anybody describing somebody of a different political viewpoint as scum, mm. for instance, which is sort of quite common, um, it, it, it seems to me that this is a kind of utter failure of, of argument. It means that there's no possible argument going on. And one of the things that worries me very slightly is this kind of pushing. Uh, so there are people who, let's, for the sake of, for the sake of argument, on the kind of Glenn Greenwald side of the Guardian argument, who will say exactly that the BBC is useless because it's establishment, and then you'll get Paul Dacre mm. of the Mail saying it's useless because it's establishment and so on. And they do want to. And I think, actually, you're, the, the point that you both made about Twitter and so on, about how people can choose increasingly in Britain their own news yes. outside the BBC, I think is something that we've got to keep an eye on, uh, really. What I'm slightly encouraged by is the proliferation of debate in this country. Um, We really do quite a lot of it. The the, the absence of political parties hasn't stopped it. And so you get the recrudescence of something like Question Time on television, which most of us, and Jenny Jenny was at the BBC with me, uh, at a time when we thought Question Time wouldn't last out the decade. We really did. We thought nobody would watch it because it was just people talking about politics. And there it is, vigorous, rude, big kind of Twitter following to it. Of course, the majority of people don't go for it. But nevertheless, it suggests that people do like discussion. The other interesting point about that, I think, just for a minute, is that um, people are also open, surprisingly, to have their minds changed, I think. I was chairing a debate on... Um, the balance between security and privacy at Intelligence Squared a couple of weeks ago. And you started off with one-third of the audience for more more security, one-third for more privacy, one-third didn't know. And at the end of an hour and a half, it was 67% in favour of more security. So a lot of people in that audience had actually changed their minds. Wow. Well, that's, that's fascinating. Well, I'm itching to come back on this worship of the BBC that we've had from a couple of you, but um, I'll have to wait for another podcast. It has lots of flaws, <laughs> we promise you, but it tries hard. We must move on to our second topic. And perhaps I could uh, ask you to... Uh, speak first on this, uh, Jenny Russell. Um, Over the last week, uh, Ed Miliband, as well as David Cameron, reshuffled his pack. And we've seen a couple of people, Rachel Reeves to work and pensions and um, Tristram Hunt to education. And it seems we have a slightly more Blairite 
position, if we're still allowed to use that word, um, on those two issues of education and welfare from Labour. Would you agree with that? And if you do, how important it is for Ed Miliband's positioning? I do agree with you, and I think it's very important. And, it, and what it goes to show is that one mustn't jump to conclusions at the minute that reshuffles happened. Because when um, Leon Byrne was evicted from work and pensions, and when Stephen Twigg was moved from schools, the assumption was being made that Labour was moving to the left. And in fact, the first statements by both the new spokesmen have made very clear that Labour has shifted completely towards the centre ground on issues of whether parents should have more choice in schooling, whether free schools should exist, and crucially, on what should happen on welfare. Labour has found itself out of um, alignment with the vast majority of the country on the issue of whether people should be allowed to spend a life on benefits, and it's decided suddenly This is the one become... area of public opinion where Ed Miliband is furthest from the public, isn't it? The Tories are pinning a lot of hopes on That's that right. particular I, issue. I can't, I, Francis, you might know what the exact proportions are. Is it something like sort of six to one, think that um, welfare changes brought in by the Tories the welfare, are the yeah, right thing? Yeah, I mean, the welfare cap is, is even, it's hugely is even popular. kind of, you know, yeah. Well, Labour suddenly announced that it's, it, it accepts the welfare cap and that um, they are going to be tougher on not allowing people to spend a life on benefits than the Tories are. That was the astounding promise from Rachel Reeves. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This week. And what that tells you is that Labour realises it's got to shift the mood. It's got to change perceptions of it as being the party, which as focus groups showed a few years ago, think that Labour represents the fat slob sitting on the sofa watching telly all day. Uh, Francis, though, but if, if the Tories in their next manifesto say that the current welfare cap is £26,000, mm. if they cut it to something like £22,000, yes. which public opinion seems to suggest likely to support it, yes. do you think Labour would match that? I think they would, Because there would be a lot of interest in the Labour Party that would resent that very much. I don't think so. I mean, you know, the, the one thing about the welfare cap is that it, it doesn't actually kind of affect that many people. So it, it depends at what point it comes in. But I, I have to challenge you, Jenny. I don't actually think that there has been that much of a change in the substance of either welfare or education this week. I think that there's, I think there's been a tonal change. I think there is a, a question about being permission to be heard. And I think, um, I think Liam was Liam Byrne was was very tough on welfare, but nobody oh, listened to him because you couldn't get through the white noise of there's no, no I money. I agree there. with you, but it was assumed that when he went, that that was because he had been too far 
to the right on well, welfare and that not, it was going to be a leftward shift. Not by me, Gav. I mean, Sorry, I think... Francis, we all should have been reading you. <laughs> well, no, the one quote that I, which I quoted a senior Labour figure, I wouldn't say who, uh, who whose question on the reshuffle was, his uh, quote on the reshuffle was, he's replaced, uh, he's replaced um, loyal Blairites, well, disloyal Blairites with loyal Blairites. And I think, you know, that's actually, that's nice what, that's actually yeah, what happened. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, I do, th- yeah, you're right in that it's significant that they want that story to be told and they're happy yes. for that story to be told and that they are clearly, clearly playing for that story to be told. But, um, you know, there's no, actually, there's no substantive difference in the free school policy whatsoever. And all we have had so far from Rachel Reeves is a, is a statement of intent and nothing that actually is delivered. But as we know, in politics, those things really matter. It's the it's the way in which you frame what you're trying to do, and um, the hints that you're dropping about what your policies would be and what your attitudes would be, and, and that's what's so surprising this week. I think. Can I can I bring David Aronovich in at this point, David? How much do you worry that there is a sour mood um, in the nation on issues like welfare at the moment? Not very much. Everyone seems to. Be, you know, we don't want to spend money on aid. We want to tax the rich, and we want to cut money from scroungers. Is the, is the language oh, that's, fa- that's used? And it, is there a meanness there that worries you? Yeah, I, I mean, I, firstly, um, there is a meanness. Second, I'm not sure whether it's more or less meanness than I would have expected, given the economic circumstances since 2008. I mean, all of us, when the crash came, who were thinking about it in the long term, thought we're in for trouble here. We're in for trouble because, firstly, people don't blame themselves when this happens, which means that they blame somebody else. They'll blame politicians, but they'll also blame people who are closer to them and people who are further to them. Foreigners uh, are further away, so if you can say it's foreigners, we'll get rid of a few foreigners, don't let them in, etc. We're going to have more jobs and so on. Uh, And Jenny referred earlier to the way in which we can manipulate the figures to suggest that the zillions of EU people are coming in here to sit on the dole when actually they're not. But the same thing applies to um, to, to, to welfare benefits uh, and so on. It's not clear to me. I mean, Francis just said that the number of people affected by the cap is not very great. If the number affected by the cap is not very great, it means it's not a very important policy. The fact that it's so touted means that it actually represents something other than itself. And the thing that it represents other than itself is the perception there are all these other people. Our benefits, we deserve them. Of course we do. You know, and we deserve to be taken out of tax and we deserve everything that's coming to us. Their benefits, they don't deserve it. They deserve to have it taken away and wouldn't be much better for the rest of us if they were. And that's the kind of epitome of, uh, of sourness, the only antidote to which, of course, is an economic turnaround. <laughs> you agree with that, Francis? I think welfare is a declining asset for the Tories, actually. I mean, there was the latest public, uh, British Public Attitude survey that suggested that people were um, becoming more queasy about some of this, um, sort of, or, or more tolerant of people on on benefits. Um, Which fascinating is maybe because more people have either needed yeah. out-of-work benefits themselves or know people who do as yeah. the recession has bitten. Yeah, yeah. It may, it may be that we're kind of approaching some sort of tipping point in terms of people's public, you know, people's experience of cuts as we never tire of, of, of reminding people we're only just at the beginning of, of, of what austerity really will mean for, for ordinary people. Okay, well, I'm sure austerity and cuts will be another topic we'll be returning to uh, in future podcasts. But um, our third and final topic today is China and India and our country's relationship between these two emerging economic superpowers. Now, I want to turn to you um, on this one first, please, uh, Francis Elliott. Before you rejoined the political team as our political editor, you were our correspondent in Delhi. And um, we've seen this week George Osborne and Boris Johnson in China looking to tout 
British business. And uh, there's a wonderful Peter Brooks cartoon, which I put on the website for our subscribers of uh, George Osborne licking the boots of the Chinese <laughs> premier. But how much does it make you nervous or how much should it make us nervous that we have British politicians going to uh, foreign countries and being almost trade representatives for this country. Is that a good or a bad thing? I think it's, I think it's a good thing uh, as long as you know, you're consistent and you're, as long as you're good at it. And my, my question, my, my problem really with, with the Cameron administration is it's fine to be, have a mercantile foreign policy, but it's actually delivered very little. And it's kind of getting to the point now where we're you know, three years in and they have certainly in, in, in the Indian context, they have absolutely nothing to point to to what has been quite a large effort. Now, I personally think that they should keep on going at it and that it's, it, it requires time and patience and diligence and persistence. But I'm not convinced that these big, flashy uh, kind of trade visits like we're seeing from Boris and George and, you know, and that Cameron is so fond of, you know, are, you know are, the, are the best way. And they do kind of open, certainly Cameron, to human rights issues. Uh, I mean, I think he'll think on the Dalai Lama that he's, you know, that he's, he's kind of earned, earned the right, as it were, to be um, to, to not mention that, having been you know, put in the doghouse for all those years. So I think it's, it's fine, but be consistent and be successful. And, and so far, they're neither. They, you, know, so you sort of get the, the impression that, that, that Cameron has, keeps a sort of scorecard of, you know, well, I've, you know, I've, I've raised this human right, so I'm entitled to push that BAE deal. I need to do that so now I can go for a run. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. But what's gone wrong, Francis? Why, why, why have they been pushing it so hard? What have they failed to do? I, well, I mean, I think they, the first failure was uh, was expectation management. Uh, the second failure, in the Indian context, I mean, it's just India it is a massive market and they get kind of blinded by the figures. And we saw that with this ridiculous suggestion that 160 million people in China are watching Downton Abbey. And it subsequently emerged that as a Johnson, true, true figure. Is seven, oh, no, you're right. Sorry, it's 700,000 probably. And you can do that in China by accident. <laughs> <laughs> so they kind of get blinded by the. I mean, and there are very big numbers, but, you know... It's it's to it's to massively simplify and misunderstand the the, the changes and the difficulties that are needed before those become okay. proper trading partners. If I could bring David Aronovich in at this point, it was a very interesting. I don't know if you heard it, but on the uh, Today program, George Osborne was interviewed by um, John Humphreys, and one of the reasons why relations between Britain and China had cooled was because David Cameron had met the Dalai Lama, and John Humphreys two or three times, I think, asked the Chancellor will now you meet the Dalai Lama again? And he refused to answer that question. He just kept saying there were no uh, plans to meet the Dalai Lama. It clearly <laughs> upset the, the Chinese. You wrote a piece, which I'll put up on the blog with this podcast, um, at the start of the year, David, in which you talked about how some of the goods that we were benefiting from, imported from China, were actually produced by religious prisoners working 15 hours a day. You talked about some of the real human rights questions in uh, China. How much does this George Osborne, Boris, going to Beijing and being very nice to the regime worry you? Well, I mean, it's there's an aesthetic problem with it, but maybe I'm one of the minority of people who thinks that the aesthetics of this counts. There's something rather disgusting about the business of going to a place where people are not elected um, and where there are all kinds of issues that uh, conceivably you could care about um, and then saying, well, actually, you know, the, this is all about business. Now, of course, it's easy for me to say that because... I have a job 
and insofar as there could be the creation of jobs here in Britain for people who, and trade with China. And of course, trade with China is better than war with China and so on. So I'm in favour of that. But what I'm not in favour of doing is us kind of pretending that somehow or other what we're dealing with here is a government of our best friends doing the sorts of things that best friends do. Um, I, I, find, I find that not just repulsive, but it's actually, it lets down other people around the world who I think on the whole we would like, insofar as we have any capacity to do it at all, uh, to help. And you sort of, you surrender a little bit of your political soul. Mm. Do we believe, though, that political freedoms will follow economic freedoms. It's often a pattern we see around the world that as, as a middle class emerges in China, which is increasingly doing, to a large extent in India too, um, we will get uh, a population that insists on freedoms, you'll, insists on democratic... You'll get a population that insists on a higher standard of living in the first instance. So that is certainly true. But there's no reason why the Chinese population per se should treat the Tibetans any better simply because they're wealthy. I mean, it might... Quite the opposite. Yeah, it might, be, it might indeed be quite the opposite. Um, yes, I have a... So you have, one has the feeling that as you get more autonomy in the economic sphere, you have more capacity to buy things and do things, you will gradually want to demand more autonomy in the political sphere. But things like all the events in Russia and so on teach us that this is not necessarily yes, a kind of one-way street in the way that one might hope. I think that's... A, yeah, I do think it's partly a weak view of history, that, the mm. idea that um, everything tends towards making the world <clears throat> better in, as the West would see it. I think what troubles me is that um, I think that we are totally unimportant. I don't think China gives a damn what we think about anything except for being a little bruised over the Dalai Lama. But what we have is a frightful combination of um, moral superiority, hypocrisy, and an urgent desire to get the dosh no matter what. And I think it would be much healthier if we said, um, well, you know, we wish they were doing something different, but actually we'd just rather increase our trade with China from 1% of its market to 3%, and that's the priority, and stop pretending that actually we're virtuous as well. On that gloomy note, we have to end this week's uh, podcast. Thank you very much to uh, my guests, Jenny Russell, David Aronovich and Francis Elliott, and also to uh, David Maguire, the new producer of this podcast. I hope you'll visit the Times Opinion blog where you can read some of the uh, stories and articles that uh, I've referred to in this podcast. Thank you very much for listening and hope that you will subscribe to the Did You Read podcast via iTunes. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.